The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. Uh, my name is Bernd Volschläger, and uh, I want to first of all thank uh, the organizer of this event to allow me to speak. I'm a little bit unusual addition to a national Jewish retreat because my story comes from a very different world. And standing here, and I'm honored that I stand here, at a national Jewish retreat and looking back where I'm coming from, this is probably the place that I never thought I would end up at. And I'm not saying it in any disrespectful way, because I'm coming from a different world in every aspect. I'm not a son of a survivor. I'm a son of a perpetrator. My father was not a famous rabbi or Jewish scholar, but he was a Nazi. And I am his son. And I'm also an Israeli citizen, served in the IDF, was an officer in the IDF, and live now here in the United States. And I'm a physician here in Miami, Florida. So how do you come from there to here? Well, this is my story, and uh, this is the reason that I'm here to share this story and to share your aspects of the story that are individual, unusual on one hand, but on the other hand also highlight aspects of history that are so common to all of us and aspects of humanity. So when I start, I have to start where, I, where everything began, and that began, of course, when and how and where I was born. I was born in 1958 in a beautiful town in Germany called Bamberg. Anybody ever been in Germany? Um, thank you. And uh, those of you who know German history, the name Bamberg and Bamberger uh, is connected to the region. Bamberg is in a town in the south of Germany, an old city, more than a thousand years old, with a very rich history of Christian life. It was actually the center of the Holy Roman Empire in the 11th century and the only pope buried outside Rome is buried in Bamberg. On the other hand, it has a long Jewish history, dating back for a thousand years, where Jews not, uh, moved into the city in the 14th and 15th century, and later on moved out of the city and formed a community of peasant Jews that lived with non-Jews uh, for many hundred years in a very harmonic and uh, in a peaceful environment and the Jews and Jewish life was so much woven into the fabric of society that until today the language, the local language, the Franconian language, is a slang of Bavarian language, contains many Jewish words. Um, very few Jews, but many Jewish words. And in this city I grew up in, uh, aware of history and the richness of history, because history was all around, old buildings, churches, cathedrals, we were taught history in, in elementary schools. You got little pictures of famous buildings and, and famous uh, Bambergers that lived there. And we had to identify those uh, historic events. But one thing that I noticed as a child, six, seven years old, eight years old, um, not intellectually, but I sensed that certain things about the past, you better don't ask because the adult wouldn't talk about it. And not that we were punished for asking, but nobody talked about it. And it was obvious that something happened in the past because we as children knew that there was a war. And the war called the Second World War. The city was never destroyed, but there were effects of that war in that city. 15,000 American soldiers stationed in the outskirts of Bamberg. Um, part of the fabric of a society with 75,000 people, very prominently 
uh, in the in the in Bamberg society, uh, American soldiers, American patrols, MPs, uh, military police. Um, we knew that foreigners and strangers there, obviously, and in uniform, obviously, we didn't win that war. But that's all what I knew about that war as a child. I knew that my parents were affected by that war, but they wouldn't talk about it. And knew they were not from Bamberg because they didn't speak the local dialect, the local Franconian. And uh, they told me not to speak it at all at home, but they spoke, they preferred speaking a, the German of literature, the so-called Hochdeutsch. And uh, when I asked my parents where they're from, I got two different narratives. From my father's side, he told me that he was born in Berlin as um, a son of a wealthy uh, family of, um, of landholders. And my grandfather, or my grand-grandfather, was an officer serving in the war, Franco-Prussian War in 1870, so my father proudly told me. And my grandfather was an officer in the First World War. And my father and all of his brothers fought in the Second World War. And my father told me the stories about the Second World War as the story of glory and heroism. Like any story that he told me about the war. That in that war he served as uh, one of the highest ranking tank commanders under the command of General Guderian, the father of the German Blitzkrieg. On every front that Germany opened from the September the 1st, 1939, when he invaded Poland, spearheading the Tiger tank units that invaded Poland, um, then invasion of, of France, and then the conquest of Russia, where he was wounded, uh, returned to, the, to Germany, and then fought the Americans um, on the Western Front, and was captured in April 1945 in a suicide mission trying to fight off the Amer invading American forces after the Battle of the Bulge, and spent the next year in war prison as a prisoner of war. So this story of the war that my father told me was a story of glorification. The war is heroism, the knight in shining armor. And he was awarded, and he proudly showed me that, the knights crossed by a man whom he proudly referred to as his Führer, Adolf Hitler. And um, so for me as a child, there was no doubt my father was a hero. And this message was reinforced by his old war buddies who came to visit us at least once a year, telling us the story about the war and referring to my father as Arturo, our hero. His first name was Arthur, Arturo, our hero. So my father was a hero. On the other hand, my mother told me a completely different story of the, of the war. The war is horror, the war is loss. She was an ethnic German, grew up in the eastern part of Europe, in Czechoslovakia, on the western edges of Czechoslovakia, as a Sudeten Deutsche, a Sudeten German. For hundreds of years, um, her her ancestry dates back into this local area in Karlsbad and wealthy merchant family, beautiful villa in the outskirts of Karlsbad. She still had the picture of that villa that was hanging on the wall of our house. And everything lost as a result of the war, having to flee from the advancing Soviet troops towards the west and just arrived with nothing, penniless, just the clothes left on her, on her body uh, in western part of Germany in Bamberg. So the war is a horror, it's a catastrophe that never we should go back to. And there was something else in our house that, um, that I had to struggle with. There was a picture of a man, a portrait of a man, hanging in the hallway of our house. This was a massive 19th century patrician-style building um, with a huge hallway and a massive storeway, uh, um, uh, walkway going upstairs, stairway leading upstairs. And um, in this hallway was a larger-than-life portrait of a man hanging on the wall who looked like my father in uniform, like I saw my father in pictures, 
um, with the officer's insignia on the shoulder that cross around his neck, proud looking. And initially I thought as a child, this is a portrait of my father, wow. But then I figured out that he looked a little bit different. And so I asked my father, who is this man? And my father referred to him as a traitor. Now as a child I knew that traitor is a bad word, but I couldn't approximate that how somebody who looked like my father is bad, i.e. the traitor, and my father in uniform is good. What is the reason? And then I found out later on from that lady upstairs who lived in the second floor of that building, she was the landlady, and my mother referred to her as the Countess, the Gräfin, and I should never speak to her unless spoken to, that this man on the picture portrait was a portrait of Count Klaus von Stauffenberg, the German colonel who was leading the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler on the 20th of July 1944, who failed and was executed the same night. His widow, Nina von Stauffenberg, lived upstairs. And that contrast of that something happened in the past that my father was not willing to talk about, that he referred to as bad, as treason, and my father's action, that uh, triggered a curiosity in me to understand that I couldn't understand yet, but something happened and I didn't know how to put it all together. And then came the summer of 1972. I was 14 years old when everything changed. And the summer of 1972 was the crown and the event of the summer of 1972 were the Olympics in Munich. And the Olympics in Munich were supposedly the event that should demonstrate to the world and was building up towards the event. We learned about it in school that this is the first time that Germany hosts an international event of that magnitude after the war separating Germany of the past of the Hitler dictatorship, the Berlin Olympics in 1938, abused by the Nazis for propaganda purposes, to the event of 1972 that should demonstrate to the world that we are a democratic country, proud of our democratic tradition, led by a democratically elected government. Among them, the, the, in the, that time, Chancellor was Willy Brandt, who himself was a victim of the Nazis, who returned to Germany after the war as a member of the Social Democratic Party, had to flee Germany, returned to Germany after the war, rebuilding his party and became Chancellor in 1969. And this Chancellor, this Prime Minister, gained a tremendous moral standing in the Western world because in December of 1970 he traveled to Poland prior to the resumption of diplomatic relationship and in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial he sank on his knees, bowed his head and in public prayed and asking for forgiveness for the sins Germany committed. For the first time a German politician in public demonstrated his pain and sorrow about what happened in the past and his willingness to atone. And I remember that day in December 1970 because my father slammed the newspaper on the breakfast table, pointing with the finger on the picture on the chancellor kneeling in front of the memorial, screaming, Verrat, wieder ein Verräter, treason, again a traitor. Because for my father there was nothing to forgive for. And I was perplexed. Why? I was a Catholic, born and raised Catholic. My mother was a devout Catholic, going to church, an altar boy. But kneeling in front of a memorial was a sign of humility, was a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness and treason. Why is my father so mad? And this same chancellor that my father so despised opened the Olympics in the summer of 19, August 1972 to a great fanfare. And we watch it on live TV, every team parading to the stadium. And my parents uh, invited friends over and it was a joyous atmosphere, wine and food and the celebrating and suddenly a team paraded into the stadium carrying a flag with a star inside. And everybody felt silent. And I knew that silence is the parent silence that you better don't ask a question when we are that silent. 
And I didn't understand but why that team. It was another team I learned in school. That is the team of the state of Israel. I mean, I learned about that flag. Uh, it could have been Spain, Italy, or, or Switzerland. Uh, for me, there was no difference, neither good or bad anyway. Why my parents have this funny reaction? And then 10 days later, on September the 4th, 1972, the catastrophe happened. The same team that so proudly paraded into the stadium was brutally attacked by a group of Palestinian terrorists that sneaked into the Olympic village, killed two Israelis on the spot, the remainder were taken hostage, and uh, the Olympics came to a halt. The German government dispatched highest ranking government officials among them, the Minister of Interior Affairs, to negotiate face to face with the terrorists, asking them, begging them to release the Israelis because the symbolism that Jews were killed on German soil and, and hold hostage on German soil was something that was too difficult to bear. Uh, the terrorists refused. A deal was struck to fly out the terrorists with the hostages to a military airport outside Munich, 18 hours later after the hostage taking in the nighttime. And there, allegedly, a German uh, military jet would take them to an um, Arab country of their choice, where then an exchange would have taken place between Arab prisoners and Israeli prison with the Israeli hostages. It never happened. The German police tried to rescue the Israeli athletes, and uh, a firefight ensued. And behind the gates of the military airport in Fürstenfeldbruck, you only heard fire and then saw explosions. The night, light, night was lighted up by explosions. The terrorists threw a hand grenade in a helicopter in which all the Israelis were, part of the Israelis were tied and bound to the chairs and exploded and killed them all instantly. The other helicopter they sprayed with machine gun fire and all died. And the next day, the picture in the newspaper that changed everything for me. Two helicopters on the tarmac, one burned out with the charred remains of the Israelis, the other, the Israelis slumped over the seat with partly, partially covered with linen, blood-stained linen sheets, and above a headline, Jews killed in Germany again. And I asked myself, what does that mean? I was not naive. I was 14 years old. We learned in school about the Nazi dictatorship. We learned what the Nazis did in Germany, creating a dictatorship that smashed the nascent Weimar Republic, that they triggered World War II. And in World War II, 60 to 80 million people died. Among them were 6 million Jews. But we didn't learn about the Holocaust yet as a unique event that led to that murder. And I asked my father, like I always did, my father was my, my guide in my life, and he was a very intelligent, even though a harsh man, and, and a very uh, tough man, uh, but he dedicated his time to, to my education and actually stimulated my intellectual curiosity, it made me read newspapers every day from the age of 10, and so I asked him naturally, I said, Father, what does this headline mean, Jews killed in Germany again? And he looked at me and said, it means nothing, it's over with them, in our house we don't talk about them. And I was perplexed. It was a huge event. Something happened. Terrible happened. And in school, we started to talk about that. And in school, we started to talk about this event not only as it pertained to the murder of Israelis, but the symbolism that Jews were killed on German soil. And our teachers shared with us their own impression, personal impression about the Holocaust. And for me and for my fellow Friends in the class was the first time that we heard about the extent of systematic murder of Jews as a policy of the German government 
done by Germans, committed by Germans, to, with the intent to wipe out an entire people systematically, not as a result of war, systematic genocide. And I was stunned, not only that it happened, I heard about it, of course, but what did my father do and his war buddies, what these, my, the war hero who battled on every war front, what did he do, what did they do? And I asked him, and I came home, I said, Father, in school we learned about the Holocaust. What did you know about it? I didn't dare to ask, what did he do? What did you know about it? And he looked at me and he said, your teachers told you that? It's all a lie, they're communists. It never happened. And I knew that this is, cannot be true, that there was too many events happened. There was this discrepancy between what my father pretended to tell me about the past, glorification, and what truly happened. And I started to read as much as I could about that time, ferociously. Anything I could find in the library and, and bookstores. And not only about the his, historicity of the events and what led to the events, but also to find, trying to find an answer, what did my father do? And I needed to find out. And so I asked him, trying to ask him questions, and the only way to get question answers out of him was to use his weakness, and one of his major weaknesses was that he was a raging alcoholic. And as a child of an alcoholic parent, I learned that you can use a soft spot when he was not drunk yet. You couldn't ask him questions because he was restless, irritable, and discontent looking for a drink. When he was too drunk, he was in La La Land. But he was in the middle, in the twilight zone. I translated now into Schicker zone. I made that up. Um, uh, you can ask, you can, his tongue is looser and he will talk. And so I ask him. And the answers came out in waves. Phase one. Um, whatever happened, already admitting that something happened, whatever happened, we didn't do it. It was the SS, but not the Wehrmacht, which was a blatant lie. Because I knew already too much about that time that the, the Wehrmacht was so deeply involved in the events that ranking German officers, and among them, I heard it from Stauffenberg's widow, what her husband told her, that they were appalled. Not because they loved Jews, they were not philo-Semitic, but because this is not what the military is doing. This is against the morale. This is, will jeopardize the morale of soldiers. And it was in the, in the winter of 1940, for example, the uh, German commander of the um, German forces in Poland, General Brauchowicz, wrote a letter to Adolf Hitler um, complaining about the actions against civilians which would corrupt morale. Of course it was rebuffed. So generals were talking, were speaking up. Everybody knew my father was lying. Second phase of answers, well, whatever happened we had to do because we had to fight partisans, rebels, uh, those with arms without wearing a uniform, therefore you, you were allowed to kill them. The rules of war didn't, didn't apply. Geneva Convention didn't apply. Just, I don't want to detract you, but that's what Hafez Assad says about the rebels in Syria, that they're all terrorists. Therefore, you can kill them. So I asked him the rhetoric question. I said, Father, how can it be that one million children were gassed, their bodies burnt, and their ashes scattered? They were fighting you, babies, little children, fighting the mightiest army in the world. It cannot be true. You're either telling me a lie or you're trying to distort the truth to be optimistic. And then finally came the last phase. And that was one evening, I remember it very well. He was almost drunk, but he was still clear enough to tell me. And I said, Bernd, sit down. You're struggling with this question, which is not a struggle because you have to understand you're a German. I tried to educate you as a German. 
we have, a, we have to represent a certain race, a purity of a certain race, and we had the historic responsibility to clean up the mess that was left behind after so many generations, the riffraff in the East. We had to clean it up. And we did it by putting them away in camps. He never used the term concentration camp, he never used the term murder, never used the term gas. And the only mistake that we made is that we used the train capacity to transport the Jews to the camps which we didn't have available to supply the troops in the front, therefore we lost the war, ergo the Jews made us lose the war. Which is not an unusual argument, I mean it sounds horrible for, for us, it's not an unusual argument, it was made actually after the First World War by national, very national, uh, nationalistic Germans that uh, Germany was lost the First World War because socialist and communist, this was a code word for Jews, backstabbed the German nation uh, on the home front and therefore the home front was weakened and they lost the war. So a similar argument he made that they had to distract it and therefore they lost the war. And this was for me not only appalling on, on a political and emotional level, it was also how can my father, the man I loved, the man I respected, the man who guided me, there's only one father in one's life, can have such an attitude and can be so callously discarding the murder of so many million as a necessity. These are not the values I can live by. These are not the values I can internalize. What shall I follow? And I was and I was moving away from him as much as I could physically, emotionally and, and spiritually and so to say bouncing off the wall and one of my teachers noticed that I was aimlessly drifting and uh, he was a former Jesuit priest and I uh, admired him a lot because of his outspokenness and he sat me down one day and I said, Bernd, something is wrong with you. You're a great student but you were not behaving right. What happened? Is something wrong at home? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, if you don't want to talk about your father, and he pinpointed the problem right, right there, then I will talk about my father. I lost my father in the war. He never came back. I grew up by myself with my mother and in a spiritual void. And I became a priest to fill this, this vacuum. And, uh, and then I became a teacher to teach young Germans like you to be better people so it would never happen again what happened. And I learned to make amends. A very tr Christian, traditional motive you have to make amends too. And I asked him, to whom shall I make amends to? I said, to Jews. Meet Jews and make amends. I said, I don't know Jews. I never met a Jew in my life. I said, well, I can put you together with Jews and I uh, try to, to understand and make, try to build a relationship. It will help you. It will help you to heal. Maybe help both of you. And uh, he put me together with a group of young Israelis, Jews and Arabs alike, who came in, in, the, winter of 19, in the summer of 1978 to Germany on an exchange mission invited by the German government. And in this political meeting uh, of young people, uh, I was one of the few Germans who participated. And when young people get together, I was at that time 19 years old and 19, almost 20, and um, they were in the age of 18, 19. Uh, the last thing you talk about is about what separates you. You try to find out what makes you alike. And I like the Israeli girls a lot. Sorry to say that. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. Um, and, uh, and I struck a friendship with an Israeli girl. And Israeli girls, um, it's a PG-rated event. Uh, they're very straightforward. And, and they're, they're and said, well, if you like me, um, why don't you visit me in Israel? And it was just a few days we knew each other. I said, absolutely, I will do that because I was not only fascinated by her, I have to admit, but I was also fascinated by those people, by those people that were like me. There was nothing that separated us. We were alike. And I wanted to find out where they're from. So I made the decision to, to visit them, her. 
And um, one month later, I scratched some money together. I had not, had not much, and uh, took a hitchhike to Italy. And from Italy, in the, par the harbor city of Ancona, port city of Ancona, in the Adriatic Sea, I took a boat, not a cruise ship, a ferry. I don't recommend to repeat that. And shipped through the entire Mediterranean for four days to Haifa. When I arrived, she picked me up at the harbor. I sent her a, a, a telex from Piraeus. This was the time before Google Schmuggle email texting that we didn't have that. And um, she uh, was overjoyed seeing me and took me immediately home with the Munit, we had a Sherut. She took me to, a, to her parents' apartment, which was in Neveshanan in Haifa, which was a very small apartment. And the parents were waiting for me, warm people embracing me, took my rucksack off my shoulders, you stay here, speaking Yiddish, I had not much that I could understand. Putting my rucksack in a corner, showed my, her father showed me the room and sat down, he, if you must be hungry, eat. And they were chatting with me, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I tried to understand, and, and she tried to translate into English. And her father looked at me and said, suddenly, after a few minutes, if in German, if you don't want, if you don't understand us, I can speak German. And I asked him, how do you learn to speak German? And he didn't say a word. He just looked into my eye and rolled up the sleeve of his forearm and pointed with the, to the number tattooed on his forearm and said in German, in clear German, ich war in den Lagern. I was in the camps. And I knew what that meant. And I wanted to sink in the ground and disappear and just make myself invisible. And uh, he said, don't be afraid. It was not you who did that. But you as a young German have to understand what happened. And um, do you? I said, I don't think I do. And he said, I will make you understand. And um, he was a very kind man, but very determined to teach me. And he took me to Yad Vashem in Yerushalayim, the Holocaust Memorial, to introduce me to the concept of the Shoah, not the Holocaust, which is a horrible word. Holocaustus means the burnt offering. And this was by no means a burnt offering, the Shoah. It was a mass murder, no religious ceremony to sacrifice people on the altar of whatever ideology. And um, he introduced me to the Shoah and, as a catastrophe for his people. And I was, for the first time, it really dawned on me what that means. And I asked myself, how could it happen? Not only how could it happen, but how can these people that were affected by this horrific catastrophe, the worst catastrophe ever that happened in their history, and, and to that extent, how can they maintain a spirit and a faith and move forward and building a country, a and a rebuilding a family, rebuild, building a country, being, and referring to me as a person without any hate? Who are they? And I wanted to find out about Jews. So on my way back to Germany, I was taken by the thought, how can I find a more, learn more about them? Because these are unique people. And in Bamberg, in my hometown, I was looking for a Jewish community, and there was actually one left small Jewish community, and I knocked one day at the glass door of uh, a building uh, that I found in downtown Bamberg, and uh, there was this beautiful colored glass door in, inside the building, and above that glass door was a golden star, and I knocked at the glass door, and an old man opened up, very reluctantly, pointing with a finger to the upstairs, and said, the dentist is upstairs, because he thought I wanted to go to the dentist, was located in the second floor, and said, I don't want to go to the dentist, I want to come to you. And he almost slammed the door on me, and then Obviously, I was not looking threatening. He said, what do you want? And I said, I want to go and learn more about Jews. I'm here for that. And he looked at me and let me in. I was probably thought I'm crazy. And um, set me down in his office. He was a 
dimly lit office, if the curtains closed, the window was closed, it was a summer day, no air condition, the fan didn't work, very warm. He took off his, shirt, his jacket, had a short-sleeved white shirt on, very white, very pale skin, and a number tattooed on his forearm. And I knew what that meant. And I was staring on the number. And he looked at me and said, in Yiddish, das, this is Auschwitz. Was Wilsten? What do you want? And um, I told him I wanted to learn about Jews. And he looked and said, I can't tell you about Jews. I'm, I'm here the chair of the community. I'm a Rosh HaKehila. We are a little community of some Holocaust survivors who stayed in Bamberg after the war. I'm just holding together a bunch of Alte Kackers. That's what he said. And, um, and, uh, and then he looked at me and said, what do you want from me? I said, I want to learn about Jews. And he looked and said, I have maybe an idea, maybe a job for you. I have to take care of this Alte Kakers and there's really a pain in the Tuchus. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm too old. I need a Goy. I need a Shabbos Goy. And he looked at me. I said, I don't know what that means. And he said, well, in return for coming and helping me take care of everything, I will teach you. Do we have a Geschäft? I said, absolutely. It was my ticket into the community. And so every Friday, every Saturday, week by week, month by month, holiday by holiday, I served as a Shabbos Goy, which you can imagine what that means. And uh, I was not very well accepted by this group of, as you refer to as the Altekakers. They were old uh, Polish Jews who uh, lived in Germany after the war because they didn't want to move anywhere else and they got jobs provided by the occupation forces, by the Americans that Germans couldn't take and established an existence there. And, and they had their little world carved out in this, in this community center. And, and they, for, for them, I was an intruder. Of course, I was the intruder. And um, slowly, I grew into this family of of choice and was slowly accepted. And the closer I came to this community of choice, um, my family of choice literally, the more my family of origin pushed me away. My father found out and he found out um, and put literally uh, set an ultimatum and said it's either them or us. And it came to a head on a Christmas Eve that which fell on a Friday night, I don't know what year it was, um, when he, uh, Christmas Eve, a big event in our household, my mother set it up as a large uh, family event um, which involved going to, to the Mass and Holy Mass in the evening, coming back home, having a festive table, uh, carp, which was symbolic eating, notion to eat fish, a lentil soup, and then uh, going into the living room where the Christmas tree with real candles was set up and my father was standing next to the Christmas tree in his finest dark suit and knights cross around his neck, always, celebrating Christmas by singing festive Christmas hymns. And I was not there. And when I came home the next day, um, all hell broke loose and my mother crying, my father yelling, and he demanded to know where I am, where I was, and I said, look, uh, let's stop this Greek tragedy because you, you may know where I was, I was in temple. And I want to tell you something else. I won't sit on the same table with somebody who has blood on his hands and pretending to celebrate the birth of Christ. It's absolute hypocrisy. I don't do that anymore, and I don't want to see this, this cross around your neck and for, to celebrate this holy Christmas day. I don't want to see that. And he said, you don't? No problem. Raus, get out. And so he kicked me out, which was a little problem because uh, I had no guilt. And, um, and without guilt, uh, there's a little problem studying, and I was already in medical school. And um, Itzhak, the chair of the Jewish community, noticed that I was under pressure, that I was not the same, not the same person. And he observed me, and, and he must have told others, because suddenly one of the members of the Jewish community approached me and gave me, without saying anything, he said, here, give me a hundred mark. 
I said, but why do you give me 100 mark? He said, take it. And uh, I never got money from anybody, so I went to Itzhak and said, Itzhak, Aaron gave me 100 mark. And Itzhak looked at me and said, so what did you do? Did you ask him for 200? I said, no, I did not. I said, you're too goyish. And uh, I didn't know what that mean. I said, Itzhak, I don't really don't know what, you, what point you want to make. I said, you're too German, sit down. Um, you have to understand, and you don't understand it yet. We are all Holocaust survivors, and many of us don't have emotions left. I had to rebuild my emotions and my relationships carefully, and Aaron is one of them who couldn't. And for him to express his emotions, to use money, and he wanted to tell you how much he appreciates for what you're doing because we know that you gave up something, a lot. So we want to help you, accept it. And from then on became the Benjamin. I was the Benjamin and uh, for, the, for the year after, uh, I remember I was taken in by everybody in, in, a war, in the warmest way that I never experienced before. And one day, uh, unfortunately, Aaron died and Itzhak, and, uh, and Itzhak approached me, he called me in the university and I was living in the dormitories and said, you have to come home. We need you. And I came home and said, what happened? He said, Aaron died. And we, need have, a, we have one man short in the Hefe Kaddisha and we're too old to, to do the job. To wash him in the, in the burial home and prepare the body and then bury him the next day. We don't have the, we need one more man. And he looked at me and said, I can't do it. I'm not Jewish. And he said, we decided you're one of us. So you do it. And um, in this emotional ceremony following by the burial and, and standing at the gravesite saying Kaddish, I said, I, I I'm one of them, what I'm waiting for. Now, I want to be a Jew. And I said, Itzhak, after the ceremony, I want to be a Jew. And Itzhak looked at me and said, it's not a good idea. <laughs> and I told you that. You can be a Gertzedek, and this is, the, this is wonderful, and you can be the, a righteous person, but you don't have to sacrifice and be a Jew. You don't have to do that. And I said, I want to. And I said, well, I can't talk you out of it. You're a stubborn guy, but I know a rabbi in Frankfurt who can and he told me, he sent a letter to the rabbi in Frankfurt. The rabbi in Frankfurt uh, was kind enough to receive me. He was, uh, invited me for, for a luncheon. I came then to Frankfurt in the morning. And he sat me down, listened to my story, very patiently. Willing, because I know my friend Itzhak and Vamberg to teach you uh, anything you want to know, halacha, tznach, but I will not convert Germans. I don't do that. And I said, well, I accept that condition. And uh, for the next two years, uh, he taught me anything I needed to know. And every time I met him, of course, I asked him and nudged him. I said, so what's new? What's with the conversion? I said, no way. Um, I, I told you, don't forget, I will not, this is not a conversion class. And finally, he, get, he relented after many times asking. I said, well, I refer your case to the rabbinical court, and they will decide. But until you get there, there are some commitments that you have to make, or irreversible steps that you have to take, regardless of the outcome that you later have in the front of the rabbinical court. They may accept or reject your case. And that involved, of course, a little plastic surgery. You don't have to go into the details. And, uh, and it had to be done according to halakha, kosher way, and in, in, um, in, uh, I think it was glad kosher. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, in, a, um, in Switzerland, in Basel, with a, and then I had to do it two months later in a kosher mikveh in, in Metz in France, but there was none available that time in Germany. And returned to Germany in December, um, in December 1986 after I graduated from medical school at that time. I had my appointment with the rabbinical court and um, underwent a formal conversion, which was a very emotional process because it was not a quiz about my knowledge about Judaism. Yes, it was in the beginning. I mean, they asked me formal questions. But it was more importantly, and I remember this question that one rabbi asked me, said, 
you told us a lot and revealed a lot about what you know about Judaism and your dedication, but that's not enough. Why does a German want to become a Jew? Is it guilt? That doesn't count. Is it conviction? Knowledge is not conviction. Tell us what, what makes you tick. What motivates you? And I had to tell him from my heart what motivates me, that I really wanted to become part of this family that was so much my family at that time. And um, they were returning after an endless time for me, I don't know how many minutes, for a decision uh, after the, and um, I had to stand up. They were reading the Theodat Giul in Hebrew and then in German. And uh, I became at that day Dogmen Abraham and was overwhelmed. Um, came home to, to Bamberg and said, Itzak, Itzak, I'm a Jew. And Itzak said, I know, word travel, so what do you want to do? <laughs> I said, well, Itzak, I want, actually, I tell you honestly, I want to go to Israel. And he looked at me and said, I feared that that would happen because then we will lose you. But why do you want to do that? And I said, I don't know where else to go because I will be eventually alone and even living with you and, and being in this community, there's not much I can do. And I want to go to Israel. And so he helped me to obtain my visa through the law, for, which I was qualified for through the law of return, through the Israeli embassy and the Jewish agency, the Sukhnut. And on January the 7th, 1987, I uh, made Aliyah, um, trying to see my parents again the night before, because Itzhak told me to do so. I was not, uh, actually didn't think about doing it, but Itzhak asked me, he said, look, if you want to be a Jew, you have to make me a promise that you live according to a Jew. And one of the things you can do right now to promise, to demonstrate that you do it is to honor your parents and uh, go home and say goodbye. And I said goodbye to my mother at least. My father refused seeing me. And uh, I left Israel and became, began the talich, as we say, the klita. Uh, went to a kibbutz, um, six months there, learned the Hebrew in, in an ulpan, went to a year in a hospital to learn uh, to get my Israeli license, my German license up to Israeli par, got an Israeli medical license in Israel, got obtained citizenship uh, after a year, and then was drafted into the military um, as a medical officer, had to do the officer's course, and then I remember standing in the ceremony after the completion of the officer's corps, and with all the sabres, it suddenly hit me, standing there in the uniform, just my lieutenant wings on the shoulder, and I said, oh my God, if they find out that I'm a German, my father was a Nazi. They would kick me out of here. They will never have respect for me. I better don't tell anybody who I am. Tell them at least as possible about yourself. Lie. Which of course was a mistake. Because who will believe this story? And who will respect me that I'm here in Israeli officers with uh, being assigned to a unit with young Israeli soldiers and, and my father was a Nazi? I mean, let's be silent. And I didn't talk to anybody about it, not to my friends, not to my wife whom I met in Israel. And when we left Israel in uh, uh, 1991 to come to the United States to continue my medical training, my medical education here and um, my residency training, I got a position here. Um, life didn't work out the way I thought. Uh, we split, our marriage fell apart, I had two children. And my children, looking for guidance, of course, when they were meeting me and being together, and we spent a lot of time always together. And my son, that was 14 years old, his name is Tal, um, and he asked me, he said, Dad, he asked me in Hebrew, Mia Sabashali, out of the blue, like children are. And I said, Tal, I don't know how to answer that question. But I knew that I had to answer this question. 
And I said, well, sit down, let me tell you. And I told him the question about the answer to the question, gave him the answer, the truth and honest answer. I mean, he listened to the story. My son looked at me and said, Dad, that's a cool story. <laughs> well, as a Jewish youngster, American, growing up in America, going to a Jewish school, my, all my children have education from, from, uh, from Jewish kindergarten to, uh, to a high school degree, and I went all, to, all the time to Jewish schools, and filling in the morning, going to temple, and uh, so um, they had a family history day in school. Two weeks or three weeks after I told them the story, he was still taken by this, by this story. And then during the family history day, where everybody shared their family history, of course, dating back to the temple, um, it, my son raised, so I was told, raised his hand and said, and my grandfather was a famous Nazi. <laughs> now, if you do that in a Jewish school, I can guarantee you, you'd run into trouble. And um, it, I was called into the principal's office with a rabbi present, which was not a good sign, with all due respect to the rabbis in the room, and um, I, um, I looked at him and said, what, what happened? I thought something terrible happened. I said, look, Dr. Wolfschläger, you're a respected member of our community. Your son told us a very verdrehte Geschichte about your, your father was a Nazi. And what's wrong with him? Does he need help? Is he confused? You can give him help. Do you have psychologists on staff? And I said, it's not my son. It's me. I told him the story, and he doesn't know how to deal with that. And probably he blurted it out. And that's the story. And the, and, and the longer I talked about it, and, the, and I tried to rapidly tell, to tell him the story, the rabbi got more and more agitated and excited and said, Kola kavod, you have to tell this story to everybody. Come with me to the class. I said, I can't. I'm afraid. He said, no, it's good for your soul when he gets out. And he was right. Uh, the first time I shared the story, very reluctantly, um, I've, I noticed that the weight was starting to get lifted on my shoulder. And when I did it again and again in the school, the weight was lifted off my shoulder. And um, I asked myself, what happened? And the circle of life that I opened so many years ago, I never ever closed it. I ran and ran and ran and I'm here. And I need to close this circle and, and continue living in a normal way by closing this chapter of my life. And so I went back to Germany with my son and we visited my parents at the only place where I knew I could visit them, at the cemetery, and uh, found their grave, uh, ironically or tellingly, on the f in a cemetery in Bamberg, two to three rows parallel to the wall that separates the Jewish from the Christian cemetery. Even today, when you stand in front of their grave, of course, you see the wall, and the, behind the wall, you see the Jewish gravestones almost defiantly casting their shadow to the other side. And here my parents are lying. And I told my son how telling. These are your grandparents, these are my parents. They still live in the shadow of history. They never stepped out of the shadow because in the, in, during life, they have not, didn't have the courage to face the, the issue and in death, they still live in the shadow. And that what should teach you that you can never escape your responsibility either as a people or as a person, specifically. You have to face it head on. And make amends to what you did wrong or trying to rectify what you did wrong. And then do something right. This is what our life can do at making a difference. And as such, I educated my children and raised my children. And as such, I, when I have the privilege like I have today to speak to an esteemed group like you are, that in every person's story, there's a, there's a kernel of truth that should all help us. And it's not about me. I lived a life that many others have lived probably before me. And each of us lives a unique life. But each of us has to one day make cheshbon and ask, what did we do with our lives? Somebody else will make this cheshbon for us. But uh, we, during our lives, we're being asked 
to do every day something to make it a better, better world. Tikkun olam is not an abstract word that will be leave it up to politicians. Tikkun olam is something we do every day. Hopefully we do every day. And as such, I'm not necessarily on a mission, but as such I'm trying to convince others that we need to learn from the past. Not only to learn to hate, which is the worst thing that can happen, because I experienced hate, what hate can do, but to learn to love and embrace our fellow brothers and sisters around us, learning to forgive too. I forgave my father for what he did, but not forgive him for what they did against others, specifically the Jewish people. But for him as an individual, I forgave him for what he didn't do to, with me, what he didn't tell me, but not give him, absolved him for all what he did in the past, because I learned later on what, that he was involved in horrible crimes. But to understand that we have to, can only move forward if you understand where the hatred are coming from and what hatred can do. What I learned that hatred starts with a word. And these words of hatred that are being uttered silently and then loudly, left unchallenged, will be followed by deeds because people will act on it. And these deeds forming habits, and these habits lead into characters, form characters, and these characters form social norms, and then you can explain that entire groups will take an attitude like the Germans did towards the Jews. This doesn't absolve individual responsibility, but it explains why an entire group can act if the entire group condones it because it all started out with the words of hatred. So where to start to stop hatred is to challenge those words, to raise your voices if those words are being uttered or being written, and have the courage to say it is wrong. And this not only affects Jews, unfortunately often Jews, but not only Jews, but any words of hatred against anybody and any group to stop and listen and then respond. Because we, as people, should know specifically, and I, as a German, know specifically what hatred can do. And this is what we can learn from the Shoah. At least when I walked the killing fields of Auschwitz together with my daughter and had to digest these horrors, which are so present on these endless killing fields that they were created the Dante's Inferno, the entry, like Rabbi Lau said, I remember him speaking in, in one of the March of the Living in, in Auschwitz, and uh, he spoke about Dante's Inferno, the gates to hell. That's what human beings can do. But we can do also others. We can learn from that, close those gates, and build a better world. And I hope we all will do that together. So thank you very much for the privilege to listen. Let me speak and to listen. Thank you. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.